0: It's Wednesday, August 3rd, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, cheese baths, a 19th century fad coming back in style. Plus, Sean the Sheep is officially going to the moon later this month, alongside 10,000 other trinkets. And a volcano has erupted near the Icelandic capital of Reykjavik, but all seems to be under control. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. Would you take a bath in a big hot tub of cheese? Or more specifically, the whey byproduct of making cheese? Back in the 19th century, it was all the rage. Now first, a brief cheese lesson. Cheese is basically just made with a lot of milk, and a heaping dash of expertise. You ripen the milk with cultures and then add rennet, a coagulant usually sourced from unweaned ruminants. You heat that mixture to about 113 to 140 degrees Fahrenheit, and it transforms into curds and whey. And unless you're making some cottage cheese for Little Miss Muffet, you then separate the curds and the whey. The curd become your cheese, and the whey, well, you don't need it for the cheese, so what to do with the whey is up to you. According to Atlas Obscura, one kilogram of cheese produces nine liters of whey, so there's a lot of whey left over in cheesemaking. These days, there are a lot of regulations around the world about what can and can't be done with whey and how it can be disposed of. Whey is categorized as having both a high biological oxygen demand and a high chemical oxygen demand. It can endanger aquatic life and is sometimes destructive to soil as well. So it's frequently used as animal feed or sometimes as fertilizer, but an increasing amount is also used for biogas and the production of foods, especially things like protein powders. And just to throw this back, to the lactose intolerance segment on Monday, whey is the part of the milk in this process that contains most of the lactose. So if you are lactose intolerant, stay away from whey in protein powders, shakes, or whatever else people might be mixing it into these days. And there are more and more products it's being put into, both because we're understanding more about its health benefits and because of public pushes for circular economies and reducing waste. If we can reuse all of that whey from cheesemaking in ways that help our health instead of poisoning the planet or aquatic species, let's do it. Now, specifically, whey contains proteins like beta-lactoglobulin and alpha-lactalbumin and lactoferrin, which are all good sources of amino acids, and some studies have indicated that whey proteins are beneficial for wound healing, weight management, infant nutrition and more. They didn't have the data on the precise health benefits of beta-lactoglobulin in the 19th century, but as food industry consultant and whey expert Jeffrey W. Smithers told Atlas Obscura, quote, they just knew it worked from an anecdotal perspective end quote. And so people bathed in it. They drank it in all different forms in Switzerland, in England, and all across Europe. Bathing in whey might go all the way back to the 1500s, but it really took off across the continent in the 1800s with the onset of spa tourism, which basically meant the wealthy taking trips to indulge in fad restorative treatments. Quoting Atlas Obscura, At the time, baths fit into a larger accepted category of bathing cures, which were administered at spas that served as important medical and recreational hubs. Many physicians believed that genetics or lifestyle factors caused disease, particularly climate and location, so advised spa visits in alpine landscapes as change-of-air cures. By the 1870s, guides listed more than 150 medicinal springs in Switzerland which often specialized in diseases, such as nervous disorders, gynecological issues, or skin rashes. Doctors prescribed both bathing regimes and drinking therapies of mineral water. In the context of medically administered leeches and laxative purges of the time, it's not surprising that spas and way baths were welcome diagnoses," end quote. But what exactly is a way bath like, and do any places still offer them? Well, for about 40 bucks, you can experience a whey bath yourself at a handful of family-run dairy farms in Switzerland. Insider took a trip to one such farm a few years back and shared the experience in a video, showing their producer Ju taking a dip in a mostly opaque, yellowy, greenish liquid in a big barrel tub situated on a big open pasture at the foot of the Alps. Shardlow, like the Atlas Obscura journalist who also tried a whey bath firsthand, was surprised at how warm it was and reported that the smell wasn't too cheesy, more like a nutty milk. Although, when she left her bathing suit to dry in the sun later, the heat on the fibers did produce a very cheesy smell. The bath itself, she said, felt very soft and pleasant, and her feet and hands definitely felt softer after the fact. Though waybathing fell out of popularity in the early 1900s, it's beginning to reemerge as a trendy tourist activity, but most likely without the added prescriptives most waybathers would have undertaken back in the day. At the height of the whey heyday, doctors didn't just recommend bathing in whey, but drinking it, both as a medicine and as a regular drink, like tea or coffee. One Swiss spa doctor prescribed 9 to 12 glasses of whey a day, plus walks, hikes, relaxing, and the eating of regional food. I wonder if he had teamed up with the country's tourism board for that very location-specific prescription. Even outside of Switzerland, though, it was thought that the best whey treatments came from there. Atlas Obscura shares the notes of one British doctor who observed that patients like Swiss whey the best, especially if they can get an import directly from a native Swiss person, and best yet if, quote, "...the said native shows himself in his national costume." Quote. Yes, we all know the proteins in a liquid supplement vary greatly depending on what the merchant you bought it from was wearing at the time. But for whatever health benefits were presumed around whey then or now, whey baths aren't quite as weird as they seem at first. Especially when someone describes it as a cheese bath, it's not that weird. It seems like a bit of a similar experience to a hot spring. You know, maybe you buy into some of the health benefits around it, maybe not. But you can certainly enjoy the novelty of relaxing into some warm water while surrounded by breathtaking landscapes. I mean, seriously, weigh bath or not, all of the photos and videos of these baths have me seriously wanting to book a ticket to Switzerland right now. It looks like the Artemis 1 uncrewed mission around the moon will have some astronauts on it after all. The first test of the Orion spacecraft and the new SLS mega rocket is playing host to Shaun the Sheep, as well as Snoopy, and it turns out 10,000 other mementos being packed onto the spacecraft. Shaun and Snoopy will both be in the form of plush dolls. Snoopy has a long history with NASA going back to the Apollo era. The then-white-and-black communication caps worn by astronauts to communicate with ground control were nicknamed Snoopy caps due to their resemblance with the fictional Beagle's white head and black ears. And in the wake of the Apollo 1 disaster, in which all three crew members were killed in a fire on the launch pad, safety became an even bigger priority at the agency, and led to the introduction of the Silver Snoopy Award, a high honor to acknowledge employees and contractors whose work ensured human flight, flight safety and success on the mission. Additionally, during Apollo 10, the dress rehearsal mission before the first moon landing, during which the mission was to get within 50,000 feet of the moon's surface and snoop around, the lunar module thus became nicknamed Snoopy, and the command module became Charlie Brown. Charles Schultz, the creator of the Peanuts, even ended up drawing mission-related artwork for NASA, and the agency has kept up an official and informal relationship with Snoopy and the Schultz estate ever since, including a new Apple TV Plus series, Snoopy in Space. The European Space Agency, meanwhile, seems to be trying to make Sean the Sheep, a spin-off character from Wallace and Gromit, their own mascot. He's trained with the agency in the past, undergoing a microgravity simulation to prepare for a space-themed feature film. And to prepare for joining the Artemis One mission, Sean the Sheep is visiting different facilities in Europe and the US for a series of blog posts the ESA will be publishing in the lead-up to the launch, which could happen as soon as August 29th. And just to be clear on some details, Sean the Sheep again is a plush toy and all of his previous training was basically photo ops with the plush toy. Snoopy also a plush toy, will be flying on Artemis 1 as the Zero-G indicator, which is fitting for the agency's safety mascot as this mission is primarily concerned with assessing necessary safety measures for future crewed missions. So we will likely see Snoopy floating around in his new Artemis pressure suit in live streams of the launch. Shaun the Sheep, however, has been relegated to the spacecraft's OFK, or Official Flight Kit. As Collect Space explains, quote, A practice that dates back to Apollo 17, the last time that NASA sent astronauts to the moon in December 1972, the OFK is a package of specified size and weight used to fly commemorative items and tokens of gratitude for those involved in the given mission. The OFK is a counterpart to the PPK, or personal preference kits, that are carried by the astronauts with small items for their family and friends. Artemis 1 is flying without a crew, but the OFK still represent an important team. The mission has and will take thousands of people working on the ground to make the flight a success. More than a month long, Artemis 1 will travel farther into space than any previous human-rated mission and enter a distant retrograde orbit before returning to Earth." End quote. So the many people and agencies involved all want a chance to send up some kind of commemorative token. In the past, such tokens have included a piece of the Wright Brothers' original Wright Flyer, which Neil Armstrong took on Apollo 11. This time, a single screw from the Apollo 11 F1 engine will make its long return to the moon. There are a ton of kind of standard items being packed into the OFK. Silver Snoopy pins to be awarded in the future, a USB drive of everyone's name who signed up for the Fly Your Name in Space campaign, Artemis 1 mission patches and pins, a ton of flags for US states and international partners, yet more USB drives and microchips with student projects and videos, the names of people who worked on Artemis, and teacher videos. There's also a few more intriguing items, however. There will be 90 Girl Scout merit badges for winners of a To the Moon and Back essay contest, which I personally think is pretty cool. Imagine getting a merit badge that has actually been up in space. In addition to Shaun the Sheep, the ESA decided to include a postcard of George Millet's Le Voyage dans la Lune, aka the old silent film in which a rocket crashes into the moon. So, odd choice there. Taking a bit more of a classy approach, the Israeli Space Agency will be sending up a pebble from the Dead Sea and a mezuzah. In addition to Sean and Snoopy, four more toys will be on board, Lego minifigs from the Lego Build to Launch digital series. And outside of the OFK, there will also be a set of Moonikins. Commander Munikin Campos, named after engineer Arturo Campos, who was instrumental in saving the lives of the Apollo 13 crew, and two limbless female phantom mannequins. All three mannequins will test different safety standards during the flight, particularly with regards to radiation exposure. Commander Munikin Campos was actually installed in the Orion spacecraft just a few days ago, making it feel ever more certain that the first big launch of the Artemis program really will happen later this month. Sean the Sheep is about to go on his biggest adventure yet. A volcanic eruption began in Iceland's Mýrdalir Valley this morning, following a swarm of earthquakes on the Reykjanes Peninsula over the weekend. According to the Icelandic National Broadcasting Service, officials are asking people to wait for more information as they assess the safety of the area, but it seems like most people are relatively unconcerned. In fact, live updates on the news site indicate that people are making their way towards the volcano in large numbers to watch the eruption. At the famous Blue Lagoon Geothermal Spa, tourists are reported to be more enthusiastic than fearful. The owners say they're cooperating with emergency responders but have not closed their doors for now. Meanwhile, helicopter services say the phone has been ringing off the hook. Not for rescue operations, but for tours. Everyone wants to get a good look at the volcano. Nonetheless, the area is temporarily under a no-fly order while the Coast Guard conducts aerial surveying. While experts say the eruption is bigger than one near the same place last year, it's still not a cause for alarm and is in line with their predictions. Quoting fizz.org, the Icelandic Meteorological Office, or IMO, which monitors seismic activity, estimated the size of the fissure at about 300 meters. It said the eruption started in the Maradalir Valley, less than one kilometer from the scene of last year's eruption. While there was no ash plume, the IMO said it was possible that pollution can be detected due to the gas release. Gases from a volcanic eruption, especially sulfur dioxide, can be elevated in the immediate vicinity and may pose a danger to health and even be fatal. Gas pollution can also be carried by the wind. Risk to populated areas and critical infrastructure is considered very low, and there have been no disruptions to flights, the Icelandic foreign ministry said on Twitter. End quote. Last year's eruption brought more than 350,000 visitors over the six months that it was active, and while both locals and tourists are eager to visit, the government is urging people to give it a few days while they make sure everything is safe. If it's anything like last year's, they say, you won't miss anything by giving it a couple of days. And while it all feels relatively run of the mill, at least to someone who doesn't live near any volcanoes, Fizz.org notes that this is only the country's seventh eruption in 21 years, and that until that one last year, the Reykjavik Peninsula hadn't had an eruption since the 13th century. But now, geophysicists think we could be entering a new period of eruptions there that could last for centuries. And given the peninsula is one of the most densely populated areas in the nation and positioned so close to the urban center where 64% of the entire nation lives, increased volcanic and seismic activity in that region could be concerning over time. But for now, most people are just excited to see the cool sights and encouraged by a needed boost in tourism. And if you want to see what's happening as well, the Icelandic National Broadcasting Service has some live streams going of the eruption. Link in the show notes. that's going to be it from me for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.